You are listening to the podcast Opioid Abuse on the South Shore, where I, Desmond O'Neill, sit down with different people and organizations working to address the growing opioid crisis. In this episode, you'll hear me speaking with District Attorney Tim Cruz about countywide efforts to work collaboratively in addressing opioid abuse. My name is Tim Cruz, and for the last 18 years, I've been the district attorney here in Plymouth County, a place where I was born and raised and where I, I currently reside, live in Myersfield, uh, and uh, have been working here in the DA's office for the last 18 years, and I've been a prosecutor more than 21 years of my legal career. And many people understand what our role is here. Our role is, as the chief law enforcement official in the county is to prosecute crimes anywhere from trespass to homicide. Uh, and a lot of the work that we do here, the investigatory work that we do here, but what a lot of people aren't aware of, of uh, the preventative things and the things that we try to get involved in with local communities, local groups, and trying to get in front of problems so that we don't see people in the criminal justice system down the road. And one of the biggest issues we've been dealing with for the last four or five years has been the opioid crisis, which is something that uh, needed to be addressed. And uh, I believe law enforcement in Plymouth County anyways has stepped up. Can you tell me about the Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force? Well, um, the Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force was put together by myself and Sheriff McDonald back in 2015 because what we were watching, our, our numbers, unfortunately, on the rise here in Plymouth County as they're going uh, everywhere in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, New England, regarding fatal opiate overdoses. So what we've been trying to do is how can we put together best practices? How can we become a clearinghouse for our county? Because we've had a lot of really good groups in a lot of our communities that are working together whether it be Marshfield Facts or Whitman Cares or whatever the town may be. But it seemed to me that they were really um, all going over the same sort of ground many times. So we thought it would be better if we had a countywide approach and to bring in people who know more about these subjects than we do. So what myself and the sheriff did, was we brought in people from the legislature. We brought in people from the judiciary. We brought in faith-based uh, community groups. We're dealing with hospitals, all five of our hospitals here in Plymouth County we have on board. Law enforcement task force uh, that we brought in with Chief Boteri and Chief Allen, which is really the beginning of Plymouth County Outreach and Plymouth County Hope, uh, a couple of programs that have been going on for a while here in our county. And trying to get everybody together to see what can we possibly do to make sure we can get in front of this problem that's out there. So, and what's the best focus of it? So in trying to eradicate the problem, you have to try to educate kids in the front end, try to make sure we can teach them to stay away from these terrible drugs. Uh, we need to make sure we go after the people who are selling these drugs, the suppliers, not the users, but the people who are making money on the backs of other people who are addicted to these drugs. And we need to make sure we can get all the resources that we can to teach people in an ongoing fashion that we're gonna do our best to make sure we can help people teach people to stay away from it, teach our kids to stay away from it, and pursue the bad guys who choose to do this. And I think that's really what our goal is. It sounds like collaboration and communication play a big role in making this system work. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think now more than ever, we need to be working in a collaborative fashion and making sure that, you know, there's no pride in authorship of this stuff. The question is, how do we fix the problem? And um, law enforcement, uh, really has, as the chiefs will tell you, have a front row seat to this, unfortunately, of showing up at many of the overdoses, whether they be fatal or non-fatal. So therefore, when really there wasn't a lot of movement uh, in, in the state for a while, uh, the Plymouth County Chiefs, through Plymouth County Outreach in conjunction with the task force, said, we're going to be involved. 
and making sure that we can continue to go out there and provide training. Uh, initially, you know, three, four, five years ago, training to police officers and EMTs with Narcan and providing free Narcan to them that we purchased and gave to them. Making sure we can give money so we can really get some real life data as to where the crimes are occurring and how can we see where our, our problems are in our county and our community. And making sure that the police officers uh, can use that information in really a positive manner. And what they've been doing through Plymouth County Outreach is that within 12 to 24 hours of a non-fatal opioid overdose in Plymouth County, if it happens here in Brockton, but the person was from Plymouth, within 12 to 24 hours, a, a plainclothes police officer, an outreach advocate would show up at the person's house bringing information and resources because one of the continued problems continues to be the stigma of being a quote-unquote heroin addict or a person on prescription medication, the opiates. And it's such a terrible problem that lots of people are embarrassed by it. We need to continue that we confront the stigma, that we also provide resources to people. And many people say, well, no, people aren't gonna respond to police. Well, you'd be surprised. If you talk to the chiefs, they'll tell you. Nobody, no police chief and recovery coach has ever been turned away. They give the information and people will do with it as they will. You know, trying to get it to their loved one, but. What I always say is if you have a son, if you had a daughter or a niece, and they're involved in this terrible, insidious problem, you take help from wherever you can get it. And you'll do whatever you can to save the life of your loved one. So I applaud the efforts of the Plymouth County Police Chiefs, Plymouth County Outreach, and all the collaboration that's been going on in our county, which I really think that, you know, uh, when, we, when we began it, and we had uh, all 27 police chiefs, actually 28 police chiefs, we also have Bridgewater State University, all police chiefs signing an MOU that they all agreeing to share information and also agree to get on board with this. Uh, many times they say, you know, you can't get 27 police chiefs or 20 police chiefs to agree that it's noontime. Uh, in actuality, uh, the men and the women, the chiefs here in our county uh, have really uh, been impressive. And like I said, they're, they're here to get in front of this problem. I think that's why even though we're, we're in an area here in Southeastern Mass, which has really been ravaged by this disease, I think that's why we've been fighting it to a standstill and I think we're getting in front of it. Can you tell me about the legislative changes that you led regarding opioid abuse? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was brought to our attention uh, not, too, not too long ago uh, was uh, Section 35 here in Massachusetts where an individual, if they are drug addicted or if they are alcohol addicted, a, a petitioner, a family member can petition the court uh, to have that person brought into court and have that person evaluated by a court clinician. And then if that court clinician deems it appropriate that the person may be a danger to themselves or to somebody else, they could send them to Bridgewater Hospital where they would be for allegedly up to 90 days, um, which is great because even though a lot of people don't want to go, uh, many people that I've talked to uh, when they get out, they realize that it's probably saved their lives. So in this one instance, I was notified by some of our state representatives, Representative Josh Cutler, Senator Vinny DiMacito, Lieutenant Governor Polito, regarding a case that occurred here in our county, unfortunately, where uh, a young man, 21-year-old man, was petitioned to go to the Section 35 by his dad. His dad signed all the paperwork. And that young man was sent to Bridgewater for 90 days. Unfortunately, uh, he wasn't there for 90 days. And he was released after 14 days. And when he was released, his dad had put money in his canteen account at the institution. He took his $175 and was released without notification from the petitioner, came back into our community, bought heroin, overdose, and died. His dad had a, a bed for him ready to go. I believe it was down in Gosnold. And if he had been notified upon the release, he feels, and I think he's right, that they may be able to save that young man's life. So uh, I talked to Mr. Berry, Tom Berry's his name, 
uh, regarding his son. I spoke to his uncle, Dave Soper, uh, and we all worked together with all those other state representatives. And we had a hearing eventually in a very quick fashion up in, up in Beacon Hill. And people agreed with us that if you are the petitioner, you should be notified at the time of the release. So uh, really in three or four months, which is lightning speed up in Beacon Hill, a law was produced that basically before an individual is going to be released from Bridgewater Hospital under a Section 35, you must notify the petitioner in the court prior to that time or that person cannot be released. And I, I believe and I hope that in the future we won't have any other similar situations where somebody is released, there's a bed waiting for them, they don't know it, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing sometimes, and they're released and we can stop another tragedy. Great things can happen when you have collaboration and cooperation. And I think everybody together that we spoke to uh, had the same goal. as So we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. And in order to make sure that it doesn't happen again, it has to be done quickly. And how can you avoid the challenges, the legal challenges, potential medical slash HIPAA challenges that are there and overcoming that? And I think we were able to overcome that. And that was one of the questions I was asked at the test uh, when I was testifying up in Boston. Um, and I think we were able to overcome that. And I'm, I'm grateful that the, to the legislature and for, to Josh and to Vinny and to Karen Polito for pushing this ball over the goal line. So now that issue's behind us. That's great. But there's a lot more issues we have to deal with. You know, when everybody's rowing in the same direction, you can get things done. Uh, and, and I think that's the attitude you have to have. And um, trying to put this together was a lot of work from a lot of really good people uh, to get the right thing done. And that's great. But, you know, I think myself and the other legislature, we're not going to just stand back and say, okay, great, you know, pound our chest, we got that done. There's too much work left to be done. And there's too many people, unfortunately, still dying due to this epidemic. So we have to continue to make sure that we get the resources that we can get uh, to make sure that we can help as many people as we can, whether they are helping people who create, you know, a lot of people who have this problem end up committing crimes, you know, whether it's they're going to go to our drug courts, our diversion programs, the, the alternatives to incarceration that we have, while at the same time them understanding that we're going to hold you accountable. And if that means you go to jail for a period of time, so be it. And when you talk to some of the judges here in our county who run drug courts, sometimes a little bit of time in jail is the best thing for a person because uh, they realize they don't want to be there. And they realize, I think, also that maybe they've bottomed out and it's time to, to grab their lives while they can. Drug court's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. All we can do is the best we can with the information and the resources that we have. But here in our county, at least, we have four district courts, Plymouth, Brockton, Hingham, and Wareham. Every one of them now have a drug court. We're the only county in the state that had, can say that. Uh, and so that means that whether you're in Wareham or Carver or Rochester or Middleborough, or you're up here in Brockton and the Bridgewaters and Abington and Whitman, or over in Hingham and Norwell, um, we've got help for you. And we, we can do that because the problem that we're facing with the opioid crisis is the fact that it doesn't have a zip code. It's everywhere. And it doesn't matter if you come from money. And it doesn't matter if you come from nothing. You see people from all walks of life that are using these drugs, whether they be beginning with prescription medication and then transmorphing into heroin and now fentanyl and carfentanil because heroin's nothing new. I mean, I was a prosecutor back here in the 80s and um, heroin was here then. The difference between heroin now and heroin back in the 80s is the purity of it. Back then, we'd see heroin if it was 18, 20% pure. That was considered a good bag of heroin. Nowadays, heroin's 90, 95% pure. It's absolute poison. And people are using it after they can no longer afford to get OxyContin or OxyContin and the prescription meds that are so expensive. 
So we've got a long way to go, uh, but heroin has always been here. The opioid crisis has been here for the last decade or so, uh, more or less. And that's something that you know began with pharmaceutical companies and the other problems that are out there pushing these these great drugs that were supposedly out there, but they were so addictive. And now we we see where we're at. So I'm thankful that you know we've been able to get our resources. I'm thankful to the fact that we have a lot of good people trying to do the right thing. I'm thankful for the fact that there is a a, a national push against uh, dealing with these issues. Uh, but I also understand from doing this job and being criminal justice for the last 30, 35 years. Um, that we're always going to have challenges. And when we get by this, and I think we will, but when we do, there'll be another challenge. Um, and so once again, we'll have to get garner our resources, get in front of the issues, help the people that we can help, make sure that we go after the individuals who are hurting people, and make sure that we just continue on and doing the best we can to make this the best community that we can. Can you tell me about the medication drop-off program? Back in uh, 2013, myself and Sheriff McDonald uh, put together uh, prescription medication boxes throughout the, co uh, the county of Plymouth. And now, as we sit here, there's a prescription med box in every police department in Plymouth County, except for Plimpton, because Plimpton didn't have a big enough lobby. But they're getting a new police station, so I'm hopeful that the, the new station will be big enough to have the med return box to allow individuals to, at any time, 24-7, to bring it to a safe, secure facility to get rid of their unwanted, unneeded, unused medication. Uh, because many times we find out that people, unfortunately, if you get medications, which may be addictive medications, say it's your grandparents or whatever, and they're putting them in their medicine chest, they may forget about them, they may believe they're expired, and they're just sitting there. And I'm not saying that anybody's relatives are going to be stealing drugs, but we've had situations where we've had grandkids visit their grandparents, they bring their friends over, and kids are rifling through those medicine chests. So how do you get rid of that stuff? You know, there's, people say, well, I'm going to take them and flush them. Well, that's not environmentally sound, so we don't do that. Um, there are some, uh, as I understand it, some chemicals out there now that you can put to them and destroy them. Uh, but I don't think that that's as prevalent as it used to be. So by doing this, by working in conjunction with Covanta, Covanta is located in Rochester, Middleborough, and they will destroy these uh, drugs. We keep track of them just like we do for a drug case, where they're all synchronized. We have their numbers. We know five pills come from here, and then they go to they go there to Covanta. They destroy them, and they can make that into renewable energy. So it's kind of a twofer that you can do it that way. And we've had, I, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of unwanted, unneeded, unused medication go that way. And they also take any sort of pills. If you have vitamin pills you want to get rid of, the only thing they don't take are sharps. So you can't get rid of your sharps if you're a diabetic or something along those lines. That way you'll have to get rid of them in another, another fashion. But they take all those medications. They destroy them for the betterment of our community. They don't destroy our septic systems by having them flushed. And we get them off the street. Because, you know, the value on the street increases quite a bit. Uh, you know, back in the days when they were making 80 milligrams of uh, Oxycontin, that was a buck of milligrams. It was $80, $80 a pill. Um, and if you were purchasing that, that you'd buy it through your, your, your prescription for four bucks a pill. So the markup's incredible. Uh, and that's why I think that you know, there's been a lot of other good legislation, the physician monitoring program. You know, I applaud the legislature for that because I think that has made doctors make sure they're watching uh, how many pills they give out uh, and also making sure that they don't give out pills at all in some instances because people don't need them. If you had a, a tooth pulled, uh, you can take a couple of a leave and, a, and, and something else and that's going to be in a Tylenol. That's probably going to be the same result. So you certainly don't need 60 perks, perk 30s, whatever they may be. And I think that the doctors understand now 
that there's there's a an accountability to them also, and I applaud their efforts at the hospitals and at the, the, the their offices and minimizing the amount of drugs they're putting back out there. I think that's a positive step. But on the not so positive step is what we continue to see is more fentanyl is out there, and fentanyl is a synthetic opiate that is produced in China and Mexico that is coming into our into our country and it's killing people. And the uh, the step after that, another the other drug that's probably 50 times more powerful than fentanyl is carfentanil, which it really is an elephant tranquilizer, uh, which basically would kill you if you take it, if you touch it, which is why drug officers now treat these things almost like a hazmat condition because they have to. You can permeate your skin if you touch it, so you can't touch it. They can't allow their dogs to go on a search warrants because the dogs touch it, they'll overdose. So we have a, a lot of issues out there from the synthetic uh, aspect of dealing with those drugs. Trying to stop them coming in the country, is we have to make that a mandate. And it's coming into our country through a variety of ways. We need to get in front of that and stop these drugs from coming in. We need to get on top of the dark web where people are purchasing items on the dark web uh, and um, making our lives and, and our kids' lives a lot more challenging. Um, kids have a challenging enough life nowadays, so they don't need this stuff. How are you working with the community to prevent opioid abuse? Uh, you know, in our preventative end, which people don't know of all the different things that the district attorney's office does, whether we go to school and talk about internet safety issues or mock trials or summer drug program, uh, social host liability, underage drinking, all the variety of aspects that go on. But one of the other things we've been doing here in our county uh, at some of the high schools is dealing with uh, sportsmen and talking to, right now, if you're going to be a, an athlete in high school, pursuant to MIA rules, you have to have go to a, a class and they're talking about concussions. What we've been doing, we've been partnering up with Dr. Muse from the Signature Healthcare, and we also talk about prescription medication and how if you get hurt, if you hurt your knee, you tweak your shoulder, whatever it may be, you don't have to take these medications. You can get through them because lots of times, especially at the outset of the opiate problem, a lot of these people were taking medications. They thought, well, it's prescribed to me. It can't hurt me, and they were taking it without realizing the effects of it. So I think now that there's a bigger realization with people that they are dangerous drugs and that they have to be taken, if at all, in, in limited quantities. I mean, because OxyContin was, I mean, I think there was a good cost to that at the beginning. It was dealing with cancer victims and the pain they were undergoing. It's just the way that it was subsequently promoted and spread out that it turned into this, into this huge problem across our country. Uh, so now I think that that has taken a step back, but we need to, once again, Get into the schools and education of kids and the parents is really a paramount. And our parents also, um, I mean, I'm a parent. We need to make sure that we're parents to our kids and not their friends. Um, we can be their friends when they're about 25, but until that time, we need to be parents with our kids and make sure that they understand that, you know, alcohol is still the biggest drug out there. It's still a big problem. We have the legalization of marijuana for people at the age of 21. We continue to have fentanyl issues and carfentanil issues, which marijuana is being laced with that stuff. So kids who think marijuana is good for you and it's organic and it's healthy, if you're not buying your marijuana from one of these legalized stores, you don't know what you're getting. And also the black market that's being created through uh, the underage the, the underage individuals who can now purchase marijuana, much like they were doing out in Colorado when it was passed, where you can grow six plants per adult, up to 12 plants per individual, creating people selling marijuana out of their homes. Creating also, because it's still a federal offense, those people know, uh, the bad guys know that you're selling weed, and they also know that it's an all-cash business because it's a federal offense, so therefore you get cash, you get weed. That creates problems for people that want to be quiet in their homes. What are the biggest challenges you are facing? You know, I think there's, there, there remains incredible challenges. Um, and 
what I see in my business uh, from doing this job for a really long time and, and the thing that I'm always concerned about are the cycles of the problems that we have. The cycles of domestic violence, the cycles of child abuse, the cycles of individuals who come from drug families, you know, people who kids whose parents use themselves, and the drug endangered kids that are there. That's what I refer to them as. So how do we help our kids, the kids who are the highest at risk, the kids who have what's known as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, the kids who have trauma in their life, how do we help them? So that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we're not talking about them being the next kid who's self-regulating through self-medication and taking themselves out of life in general. So what we've been doing in Plymouth County, we were uh, actually got a, a mini grant from the Attorney General's office in which we're teaching now through the Har Harvard University, the Trauma and Learning Initiative, in conjunction with Mass Advocates and also um, uh, the Mass Teachers Association, teaching schools how to become trauma-sensitive schools to the kids who are at risk and dealing with the kids who really are the most at risk. And those are the kids who have these ACEs, the kids who perhaps their parents have overdosed, their parents have passed away, their parents have gone to prison, they have been beaten, they have been hurt. Every one of those issues becomes an ACE. The more ACEs you have, more likely than not you are gonna be a drug user and probably an intravenous drug user by the time you hit a certain age. So how do we help those kids and get them the information that we need to? We've done, we started this program 10 years ago. We started with kids who were um, victims, really, of, of uh, uh, gang and drug violence and gun violence here in the city of Brockton. And by doing and making three schools here, trauma-sensitive schools in Brockton, they saw their referrals to the office in those schools go down by 80% because teachers were learning how to deal with these kids versus, okay, you broke a rule and therefore it's a mandatory three-day suspension and you're going home. You know, uh, when we go and talk about this, we talk about it on a national level. We talk about uh, a young boy who one day was stealing from other kids' lunch bags, stealing their lunches, stealing their money. And normally what would happen to that child in that school, he'd be suspended for three days, no questions asked. But this was a trauma-sensitive school, so they sat the kid down, they talked to him, and they subsequently found out that his dad had overdosed and that he was scared for his mother was gonna have enough food and was gonna have enough money. So that's why he did it, he never acted out before. So how do you get resources to that kid? Because he's one of the kids that are going to be at risk down the road. And I think that, you know, by talking to our teachers, talking to everybody in the school systems, that's really the key because people are dropping their kids off there for seven, eight hours a day. And I think our teachers have a real challenge nowadays in trying to deal with the litany of problems that kids are dealing with, uh, whether it be problems from you know, cyberbullying or whatever the, 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 the current game is that the kids are all playing. There's, uh, there's so many challenges out there. So I think that you know, by trying to focus on these kids who are at risk, these kids who are endangered, we want to break that cycle. And I think that is going to be the first step into making sure that we can help those kids break these cycles. And then we're not going to be talking about this stuff anymore. You know, but I see the challenges that are there. And I understand that these are the kids who uh, really are coming from the broken homes, the people who don't have mentors in their lives, kids in their lives that they can look up to. Kids need somebody to look up to. Kids need to be busy. Kids need to have education. And you know, and, and a little bit of structure in their lives is a really good thing. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we're gonna be able to continue to do that and cross these paths as we can continue forward uh, with this opiate challenge. You know, I've been, a, I've been a prosecutor for, uh, or a criminal defense lawyer, one of those for 34 years. Kids that I represented back in the 90s, I'm dealing with their kids now. You know, families that I dealt with back in the 80s, I prosecuted in the 80s, I'm dealing with the same families now. So something's not working. Yeah. You know, something's not working. And that doesn't mean that, you know, people aren't trying to make it work. 
it means to me that there's gaps, and there's gaps in the system. And people always talk about wanting to have reform in the criminal justice system. Well, that's, that's great, I guess, but that's not, in my opinion, that's not where you should be looking because the criminal justice system is the depository of, of society's problems. Mental health issues, drug issues, broken family issues. They all end up into the criminal justice system, which is not really fitted to deal with those issues. So it's a bigger societal issue, whether it's you know going to be resources to families, keeping families together, providing these leadership mentor roles that need to be done. It's getting resources to these kids and make them understand that there is a way out of some of these problems. When we looked at our, our numbers here in the city of Brockton, we looked at um, where kids that had committed crimes, juvenile crimes here in the city of Brockton, not where they committed the crimes, where did they come from in the city? 80 to 85% of them come from the same area. Doesn't that tell you that you need to put more resources in that area for those kids? These kids who don't have anybody in their lives. We have to provide that. And until we do that, we're gonna, we can keep banging our heads against the wall of the criminal justice system. It's not the answer. It is a piece of the puzzle. And I think that we're doing an awful lot in law enforcement right now and trying to deal with issues that quite honestly are not our bailiwick. I am not a social worker. I am not a mental health, mental health provider. But that's what I'm doing. And the reason why we're doing it, because once again, law enforcement does not idly sit by while somebody else doesn't do it. We have to do it until the people that should be doing it do it. And even then, we're, we're willing to work. I'm, I'm, people say to me, well, you, you people shouldn't be doing this opiate stuff. And I say, well, who else is doing it? You know, I mean, you can criticize me all you want. That's the nature of this business. But we have a responsibility, I think, to, to make sure that we can help the people that we can help by using the resources that we have and doing the best practices that we can. And if somebody smarter, better, more able wants to take over our drug task force, so be it. Go right ahead. But until they step up, I'll be there. Sheriff McDonald will be there. Our 28 police chiefs will be there. And we're gonna to continue to work with everybody to say, to say, listen, you know, we're doing the very best we can. In, in really an area that's not our bailiwick. So um, we'll, we'll continue from there and I'm hopeful that uh, everybody will eventually step up and uh, it'll make the, the world a little better place. What progress is being made? You know, I, I think that the information sharing and the collaboration is unprecedented. I'm on the board of the National District Attorneys Association. I was involved in writing their white paper on the opiate crisis across America. When I talk to prosecutors across America, they cannot believe what we're doing here. Uh, they, it's, a, it's a challenge that is unprecedented and they can't believe the efforts that, be, that we're working together. So I think the progress of all of us working together is something that's very positive. I think the understanding that we all need to have that one goal, that goal of removal of these drugs from everybody's lives is, is, a, is a worthy, worthy goal, uh, and that we need to continue going that fashion. So I've seen our numbers plateau. I've also seen the number of non-fatal opiate overdoses in the last couple of years escalate. Um, and that we're, I, don't see, I haven't seen the exact numbers for the end of 2018 yet, but we're gonna be in the vicinity of 13 to 1400 uh, non-fatal opiate overdoses. And we're gonna be in the vicinity, once again, of less opiate deaths this year than last year. So I think you have to take your, your accomplishments when you can, uh, but you have to understand that uh, there's a lot more work to do and that we need to make sure that you know, we still do my main job. My main job is pursuing the people who peddle poison. Uh, we, we got our first manslaughter conviction uh, last year of an individual who was selling fentanyl, knowingly selling fentanyl, and killed a young woman down in Wareham. Uh, and by doing a lot of good old-fashioned police work, using the phones, getting information off the phones, able to piece those cases together. 
And people that choose to sell these drugs should understand that that is not a sole issue. We continue to do that and work on these cases. And if I can prove you know, beyond a reasonable doubt in a good faith fashion that individuals, are, their conduct rises to the level of homicide or manslaughter, we will come after you. I think that, I think that sends a message. Uh, that we're not, I'm, you, they're tired of showing up at unattended deaths where people are dying because of the fact they're overdosing. And they shouldn't be happening. And they're tired of making notifications to people who tell them that their kids are dead. You know, that's something that I don't think anybody ch cherishes or wants to do. But it's a, unfortunately part of the police officer's job in conjunction with firefighters and uh, religious people to make those notifications. So I think that we've made progress. Um, uh, I think it's slow, uh, but I think it's positive. It's always, I mean, it's a challenge because quite honestly, many of the times if there's somebody who is left there after they've called for emergency services, they don't give you information uh, because of the fact that they're still using themselves and they're not going to give up their dealers. So that, you know, you're trying to help them. You have the Good Samaritan law also too. You can't prosecute them for making the phone call, which is great because I think it saves lives. But um, we want that information. We want the people to sell the drugs especially these guys that aren't using. They're in it to make money. They're in it to make money and they're killing people. To me, they're murderers. So therefore, they need to be held, held accountable as such if you can do it. But we have our standards and we have to make sure that you know, we do our stuff in a good faith fashion and do our job uh, as best as we can. And I was thankful for that conviction last year of manslaughter and we're gonna continue to look at these cases and see if we can put other ones together. What do people need to know about opioid and substance abuse? Well, I mean, you should learn about as much as much about it as you can. Um, you know, whether you go online and find out about it, and you should never use it. I think that's probably the most important thing. There is no, uh, I'm just going to try it once. You try it once, you're in, and that's a a real difficult challenge. You talk to anybody, you talk to anybody, any of the groups that we deal with, whether it be Teen Challenge or you know Learn to Cope, or any of the individuals and groups that that, that have people that have used drugs before. Um, they can tell you that the biggest mistake in their life is doing that, taking that one pill, shooting that one needle, smoking that one joint lace with something they didn't know what it was. That was the biggest mistake of their lives. And I think that's what we have to get to people to understand that there is no just one time. You cannot just try it. Uh, if you try it, you're going to be dealing with this for the rest of your life and your life will spiral and swirl out of control. Um, so I think that's that's probably the most important thing, education-wise. This is why we try to get the kids at a younger age so the kids can understand that uh, this stuff is poison and that you need to stay away from it at all costs. Uh, and that's why we have to make sure our parents, even parents that may be using, because what we found out through our numbers, through outreach, you know, that um, most of the individuals last year that passed away were between the ages of 20 and 39. And that's childbearing years. You know, and 75% of the overdoses that occurred in our county last year happened at home. So you have the vast majority of the people, our parents, overdosing at home. And who sees that? The kids. Those are our drug endangered kids. Those are the kids with ACEs. So that's why we have to make sure that the, the kids, we help those kids to stop that cycle. And at the same time, we have to get more education to other kids to stay away from the stuff in the outset. I think that's imperative. Uh, kids, uh, you can't be afraid to tell them about it. Kids are smarter than us. Kids have access to more information than we ever had before. Kids all have cell phones. The kids all go on the internet and they get more and more information. Uh, we have to make sure they get the right information and understand how, how bad this stuff is. What can people seeking help for themselves or for their loved ones do? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I would advise anybody that needs help to get in touch with Plymouth County Outreach. 
uh, or the Plymouth County Hope, which is really the four drop-in centers here in Plymouth County, which meets every Tuesday at various churches. New, New Hope Chapel down in Plymouth, there's over in the East Bridgewater, there's one of the churches over there. If you need help, there's help there. You can come to our website at the Plymouth County, Plymouth County DA's office, which will lead you to our task force website, which has all the information that you need to help you go and get the help that you can get. Um, and like I said, many times, I know people have asked us questions in the past, do I have to wait for my child to overdose before I get help from outreach? Absolutely not. We can help you now. If you need help now, you can get help now. We want to stop overdoses. You know, you don't have to wait until your loved one is near death. So I think that there is information out there. Go to the website, the Plymouth County DA's office. I think we can provide access to you to all that information. And um, just remember there are people out there and that there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of good people doing the right thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Opioid Abuse on the South Shore. To watch our documentary on the subject, click the link in the description.